there's this moment of magic when you know for certain that that character is ripe and ready to go. There's nothing more you can add, there's nothing you can take out, it's perfect. Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm Pamela Hensley, and on the show today, acclaimed author Anita Rao Badami talks about the many landscapes of her life, the violence she witnessed after the assassination of Indira Gandhi, and how her visual art intersects with her writing. Anita was the daughter of an Indian railways engineer whose family moved often for his job. But they traveled by train, and she loved the travel and the change of scenery and the stories she heard on the way. In 1991, she left India for Canada, where her husband was continuing his studies. Already a journalist, she enrolled in the creative writing program at the University of Calgary and began the manuscript for the novel that became Tamarind Mem. Four years later, she published her second novel, The Hero's Walk, which was a regional winner for the Commonwealth Prize, long-listed for the Impact Dublin Award and the Orange Prize for Fiction, and was a contender for Canada Reads. Can You Hear the Nightbird Call and Tell It to the Trees were the two books that followed after she moved to Montreal. Anita joins me in the studio today. Anita, in your first book, Tamar and Mem, the husband and father was an officer for the Indian Railways, and it meant the family moved often. This was true also of your father. What was it like traveling through India by train in the 1960s and 70s? I loved that life. I mean, every third year, we were in a different city, new schools. It was like uh, a permanent holiday. (laughs) I didn't have... uh, Well, the... The downside was that I have no long-term friendships. Yeah. Because, you know... We, you make a friend India, here. Exactly. Yeah. But you saw all of India? Not all of India. The sector in which my father was posted. He was he was in the Southeastern Railway, which basically covered the state of Bengal. And so I grew up in that state, in various cities, towns, small towns, big towns. I I, I was in Calcutta for uh, several years. And then he was posted, I think, in Lucknow, in in Guwahati, which is in Assam. So all of that eastern uh, side of India, parts of central India, and then uh, South India for a bit. So it was everywhere. And the best part of it was summer holidays <laughs> because we were allowed to travel with my father when he went on what was called line, when he went on line, which meant that he had to go on tour. And our railway officers, as they were called at that time, were given these Homes on wheels. The saloon. Yes, yes the saloons. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Carriages. That sounds so cool. I know. So when, I mean, when, so these used to be something like four-bedroom uh, apartments on train tracks. I pictured it like one of those mobile homes that you see going yes, down the, yes. the highway. <laughs> except, except it was on tracks, train tracks, four bedrooms, electricity, refrigerator. There was, you know, his full staff was there. And uh, a living room, a dining room. Uh, There used to be a sort of glass bubble in the front of the train, which was the inspection carriage, which was basically his office. 
So you could sit there and watch. Well, we weren't allowed in there oh. except when it was when he was off duty. <laughs> but you could see the countryside go yes, by. Yes, we, well, we could see the countryside anyways from the windows. But that bubble was special because you could see more or less 360 degree view of everything. And you go through the, the mountains everywhere. Yeah, all kinds of places, and that was magical. That is an experience that I would love to repeat. <laughs> And in doing this, you learn different dialects, and you not just dialects, languages, because we moved from state to state. So we we were obliged to pick up uh, the language of the street, in a manner of speaking, very quickly. And each state, although we went to English language schools, uh, we also had Hindi as a second language, and we also needed to learn. A third language, which was the region, the language of that state, the vernacular of the state. So, you know, when we were in Calcutta, I learned Bengali. Uh, when we were in Lucknow, of course, it didn't make a difference because it was Hindi, anyways. And I had the option of learning another language if I wanted to. And you could pick up these languages well, easy when enough. I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now my mind seems to have sealed up. It's so much easier then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, many of the women in your fiction are are stunted and often embittered by arranged marriages and a lack of higher education. But you managed to go to university in uh, Madras, was it? Yes, but it, well, these women aren't reflect uh, ref reflective of my uh, the women in my family because I wondered if well, your family was progressive. Very, very. My mother has a master's degree in botany, mm. and she, you know, she belongs to a generation where most women didn't get an education. My grandmother wasn't educated. She got married very early, my maternal grandmother. But she was really smart. She picked up six languages, oh including gosh. German. <laughs> wow. And she was the one who provided schooling at home. I mean, all her daughters went to school. She had, uh, she, my, I have four. Well, my mother has three sisters. And they're all very well educated. Uh, my father's side, all the women were also, you know, they had uh, university degrees. They were journalists, civil servants. So it was a different kind of, I, I mean, my immediate family, they were, the women were strong and educated and very opinionated. But in the interests of fiction, <laughs> it's good. good to you don't have to use your problems. own. Yes. <laughs> well, was your family typical? Not entirely. Well, it was. Uh, it's kind of important to understand that this railway life that I led. Most of the women there were like my mother. You know, these were people who were, I'd say, upper middle class, not very wealthy, but they were very well educated. Mm -hmm. And these were government servants, civil servants. So there was a whole different. Um, it was a different kind of life, you know, and most people there were like my family, uh, or, or at least the people we knew. I'm sure there, were, there was a huge range of uh, lifestyles, experiences, etc., which I'm not aware of and probably wasn't aware of as a child, um, which is why I write fiction. I can make <laughs> up all those things that I didn't know. <laughs> And you went on to study journalism. Well, I did a bachelor's in English literature, and then I did a master's diploma in uh, communication studies, which included journalism. 
and advertising and radio, television. Copywriting, just, yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I was a copywriter for about three years. Couldn't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you envision your career to be? I knew that I was going to be a writer. I didn't know how, what, how, I mean, at 22, uh, you're sort of, you just want to go out there and explore everything. And when I got out of uh, university, I thought copywriting was the way to go because in the 1980s, marketing and advertising was this big new thing in India. Mm-hmm. Well, three years <laughs> as a copywriter, I just couldn't stand having to write all these jingles and, you know, advertising slogans for That's why you gave products. one of your characters that job. Yes. <laughs> We'll get to that later. (laughs) Yes. So that's when I, and I had been writing for newspapers, freelancing for magazines and newspapers for while I was a copywriter too. And you wrote some stories? Um, Yeah, a short story. Well, the stories were primarily for children. The articles for newspapers were reportage on um, women's issues, children's issues, things like that. Mm -hmm. So... Once I decided to quit copywriting, this seemed the obvious uh, path for me, you know, to be a freelance journalist. And so I did that, actually, and quite successfully. I was writing for all the major national newspapers for at least eight years, I think. Mm. Yeah. And um, and writing all those short stories for children's magazines. <laughs> So this was your career? Yes, yeah. it was okay. my career. Well, then you were married, you had a child, mm-hmm. and your husband was, he decided to accept an entry to a master's program at the University of Calgary, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yes. How did you take that news? I uh, didn't want to go anywhere, to oh. be honest. <laughs> Unlike your childhood. <laughs> yes. I loved my career. I mean, I loved the way that career of mine had taken off, and I was enjoying things th- a lot. I mean, I was enjoying my career, the way it was working out. Mm. And I had no desire to go and set up shop anywhere else because this had taken me time to get to where I was. Yeah, it does take time to get established, doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, I didn't have to, I'd reached a point where I didn't have to go around um, hustling for work. I could send a a proposal to an editor and they'd say, yeah, go for it. And, Mm. you know, it was that easy by then. So, so had you lost your desire to keep moving? Um, I li- uh, at that point, I, I hadn't really. I mean, I was excited at the prospect of going to another country because I'd never been outside of India, mm-hmm. never been abroad. So it was a mixture of reluctance and excitement. And I honestly had no idea what was waiting for us in <laughs> Canada. Out in Calgary. <laughs> yes. Did you expect to return? Was it supposed yes. to be temporary? Yes, it uh-huh. was. We kept saying, okay, once this master, my husband came here for a master's degree. He, I mean, he had a degree in engineering. He, he is an engineer by profession originally. And this master's degree was supposed to be an extra layer um, and a way to segue out of pure engineering into social sciences. Mm-hmm. So we thought after the master's, you know, we'll get back and figure out what to do. <laughs> and? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> after the master's, he decided he wanted to do a PhD. Oh, boy. <laughs> 
And in the meanwhile, my first novel had, was, I had finished writing my first novel. You enrolled in a creative writing program also at the University of Calgary? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I enrolled in uh, courses in fiction writing to begin with. And the year he finished his master's and left for his PhD to Vancouver, I got into the master's, a master's program in English literature at the University of Calgary. Mm -hmm. So I stayed behind to finish my master's with our son, who was about five or six, then mm -hmm. four. I've forgotten now. <laughs> and, Young. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, my husband uh, moved to Vancouver. So we had this commuter uh, relationship for a bit. <laughs> and, and this uh, was the first time you'd written fiction? or Well, no, you no. had your children's stories. Uh, I had my children's stories, but it was the first time I was writing fiction for adults. Okay. And the first time I was writing uh, a novel. So before the novel, uh, I had written all these short stories for those courses that I was taking, the fiction writing courses at the university. So when my supervisor... Um, Aretha Van Herk suggested that it might be a good idea to do a master's degree. I thought I could just slap all those stories together <laughs> and hand that in in my thesis. Collection? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, she said, no, no, that's no, not happening. That's not how it works. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you, you did go on to write Tamarin Mim, which became your first novel. Yes. Uh, it was your master's thesis? Yes, that okay. was. That was. Did it come out of one of those short stories? Um, no, not at all. Actually, no, it didn't. I um, I was reading a lot of literary theory. Um, uh, people like Deleuze and Guattari and all kinds of interesting uh, people. And so it did something to my way of thinking about story and structure and um, underlying layers uh, in a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think it was something uh, about metaphori. And I can't remember, maybe it was a, no, I know. Deleuze and Guattari had, uh, had this really intricate theoretical essay about ginger roots. And don't ask, I'm not going to go in there. <laughs> yeah. So that, I, I sort of glommed onto that. And there was another, um, somebody else who had written about transportation ideas, uh, the word metaphori being, you know, um, sort of ways, uh, movement of things and um transportation. I mean, it was all this muddle jumble of uh, theory in my head, which sort of resonated with the kind of life I had led. The fact that I had, I was always in a state of flux. I was always moving. There's always change in my life until change became the constant in my existence. And uh, I wanted to write about that. And I also wanted to write about the fact that I, I mean, obviously, my mother was in India then, and when I'd call her, we'd have these conversations where she seemed to remember things differently from what I did. Of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we'd have these little conversations about, oh, no, you, you're wrong. You don't remember that right. How can you possibly remember that? You were a child. <laughs> well, I had a great memory as a child. <laughs>
So that sort of fed into the whole business of movement, of travel, change, uh, distance, the perspective that distance offers you when you're away from uh, the place where you were born and Mm -hmm. all that. And that became the basis for my novel. And then everything else was uh, layers of story spun from tiny bits of fact or memories, uh, characters. I remembered small details about characters and then invented a whole bunch of stuff. That's <laughs> what writers them. do, yes. Yeah. Perfect. Well, at what point did you decide it could be a commercial product? Or was it your advisor? Well, no. Actually, I handed the book in to my thesis committee and it was just force of habit, I suppose. You know, as a journalist, I'd have this article ready, I'd put it in an envelope, and this was the day before internet and all that. So it was put in an envelope, stick a bunch of stamps, send it off to somebody with my form letter, which was went something like, this is an original unpublished <laughs> article. If I do not hear back from you in a month, I will be sending it elsewhere. Really? Yes. <laughs> that's very forward. <laughs> I know. And so that's what I did with this manuscript because I had no idea there were uh, agents and there was uh-huh. this whole process um, a publishing process where you send sample chapters and things like that. I, I honestly was... You sent the whole thing? I sent the whole thing. <laughs> Directly to the publisher? To Penguin, <laughs> Penguin you Books. You went straight to Penguin? I went straight to Penguin. <laughs> because I love we, that. <laughs> you have no doubts. I love the confidence. I didn't know enough to have doubts. <laughs> oh, that was an excellent book. I, <laughs> Thank you. Tamron Mem became, in fact, your first bestseller. I thought it was a gorgeous book with these unforgettable characters, especially the sharp-tongued, angry mother and and the silent father. They come alive. They're so real, exquisitely drawn, full of contradictions and secrets. I know this is an impossible question, but how do you make that third dimension come alive? I don't know. There's this... um, I think the thing is to push these characters as far as you can dare to go, even at the risk of offending people who might think these people are, these characters are based on them. And I know I've offended a lot of people in my family. I'm worried about your mother. <laughs> my mother was sneaking <laughs> looks at the manuscript and she was horrified when she read it. What are people going to think? Yeah. <laughs> I said, why do you care? This is fiction. And you know it's not true. <laughs> so you just so, extrapolate on characteristics. Hugely. Yeah. And uh, there's that moment. It's it's just, I, I can't, it's very hard to explain. And I'm sure a lot of writers feel the same way. There's this moment of magic when you know for certain that that character is ripe and ready to go. There's nothing more you can add. There's nothing you can take out. It's perfect. And all those other characters are working with that main character perfectly. You know, there's there's just, it's just magic. Uh, that moment, it's, I, I don't even know how to explain it. And until that moment happens, you just struggle and struggle and struggle, you know. And sometimes it's necessary to, that magic happens if you've got three different characters and you collapse them all and make them one. Ah. Or you turn a male character into a female character. Right. And, and it suddenly works. it's, yeah, suddenly that character is real. 
you know. So the um, the mother of the title, uh, <laughs> she's often angry with her husband. She doesn't like moving. She's resentful, irritated. Was it unpleasant to have to sit down and write this character all the time? I didn't uh, find her unpleasant, actually. <laughs> I I mean, the thing is, again, I think most writers inhabit these characters. So in her skin, I could feel that resentment, the the annoyance of having to pack and get all your kids into new schools. And, you know, my mother used to feel that way. And I'm sure all those railway mothers used to feel the same way. Uh, every three years, imagine packing up your whole house. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Moving everything, finding new schools for your kids. And getting into these schools was another headache because everyone wanted seats in the same schools. Of course. And you get there when your dad is transferred there and sometimes it's in the middle of a school year. And then you have to go. I, I remember my mother used to go and make these wild promises about my academic <laughs> capabilities. No, she'd go and tell these sister superior, mother superior, my daughter, I can guarantee you that she's going to get 100% in math. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and if she doesn't, you can, you know, she'll, she'll leave the school. So I had to somehow get that 100%. <laughs> When you stop writing, do you leave the character behind? Completely and absolutely. The whole book, I'm done. I meant in the process, at the end of the day. Oh, at, no, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. Till the book is done, there's no running away from these people. They haunt they, you. Yeah, they haunt you. They, <laughs> they consume you. you. They stalk you. <laughs> You weave the backstory of the daughter, Kamini, um, in with her tale of moving to Calgary. How did you decide on that structure? That was actually a last-minute thing because when I handed the book in um, to Penguin, uh, it was a, a first-person narrative, I, if I remember right. Kamini didn't, her voice, there weren't these two separate voices for two separate people, the mother and the daughter. Um, it was just one voice. And um, so uh, my editor uh, got back to me with all these notes and, you know, she said it was, you know, just general notes saying that you need to do something to give this more uh, depth and structure and so on and so forth. And I have, uh, to this day, I don't know why it occurred to me that it might be interesting to have these two voices just like the parallel train tracks. And so it just came out of the blue. And the, the mother sending all these postcards, which which the daughter finds so annoying because it, there's no information. <laughs> she doesn't know where she's yeah, going. She doesn't she, know what her mother is up to. This. My oh, mother has never done anything like that. But <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I, I could imagine, I could imagine how it would feel if I got these random postcards from my mother wandering around in uh, India. And I also found it ironic and funny that the woman who had complained all her married life about traveling suddenly decides to own that thing that she hated so much. It added layers, I thought. Like you yeah. were talking about layers, yeah. and it added that extra yeah. layer, too. Yeah. Um, like in all your books, in this one, you don't romanticize um, India. In fact, you spare nothing. You get 
people urinating in the streets, stained <laughs> teeth, bad habits, yeah. the stench of sewage, chaos. Are you ever tempted to present it a bit differently? Well, India is what it is. It's beautiful. It's ugly. It's complex. It's chaotic. I love it the way it is or with all the flaws. It It's fantastic material or it used to be fantastic material for me as a writer because the, uh, for me at least the, the most interesting writing comes out of flawed spaces, flawed people, conflict, disturbance. Mm -hmm. So I think at that stage in my life India was the perfect place to draw from. Almost like and a character itself. Yes, exactly. And it's so rich and uh, warts and all, you know, it, there's so much of it. There's there's that intense ugliness and then there's a huge contrast and there's such sublime beauty. There's real tragedy and there's there are all these hysterical moments all the time. I mean, every day it's unfolding outside your window, every moment. So that, uh, I had to put those in my books. Any book that's about India will naturally have all that. Mm -hmm. There's, it, it is like that even now, you know. Uh, your second book was The Hero's Walk, which became an immediate success and in which the Quill Choir noted you imbue every sentence with compassion. Sripathi, the protagonist, is one of those un unpleasant characters, again, always irritated and short-tempered, but he changes over the course of the book. Is, is that what's so important? Yes, I think... Uh, for me, at least, again, because most of my books are character-driven, I feel there needs to be some kind of narrative arc uh, for the character, some kind of change from the beginning, experience from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. It can be a small thing, you know. It can be the smallest realization. But I, f I find that that's necessary to drive the story in some way. And so this man is so rigidly duty-bound, has such um, firm notions of what he should be as a father or a son or a husband, that he leaves himself no room for doubt mm -hmm. until doubt enters their lives in the form of a very little girl, mm -hmm. an eight-year-old child. And, of course, a huge tragedy, the loss of his daughter. And that is enough to force this man to reassess who he is and who he wants to be. Mm -hmm. Even though he's not exactly a young man, there's always room for correction. Does it come with the regret he starts to feel? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I felt sorry for him. Yeah. <laughs> I know so many people like back. that. No, you yeah. can't. You no. can't. Absolutely. He can't resurrect his daughter. No. He can't take back the anger that he had directed at her. But he's got a son as well. Yes. And so that can, yes. that can be helpful. Yes. Right. Superstition is rife in this novel. The consulting of horoscopes <laughs> and birth charts before a marriage, omens, spells, the <laughs> observation of evil time. <laughs> Did you grow up believing such things? I didn't, but I was fascinated by that. My father was a complete agnostic, atheist. He <laughs> believed he hated all this. He hated all the mumbo-jumbo religion, rituals. Nothing was allowed in our house. My mother's, my mother's definitely not religious, but she liked 
marking occasions. And in India, there are hundreds of festivals. So she picked a few which involved lots of people, family, lots of food, new clothes, <laughs> presents. <laughs> so, um, and pretty festivals <laughs> involving lights and things. And so those were, I, I loved that. I loved the celebration, you know, the marking of something, either even if it was something in your life, to mark that moment with a small ritual of some sort, some kind of ceremony, was fun. Was it usually accompanied by some kind of superstition that you had to observe? Not really. Just one thing my mother used to, I mean, this we believed when we were children, but then, of course, we started rebelling against it. <laughs> so uh, the part of India I come from, which is South India, or, and one specific uh, state, Karnataka, New Year happens, I think, in April. I've kind of lost track. Uh, it depends on the sun or the moon or something. <laughs> I'm really bad at this. <laughs> so <laughs> it's called Yugadi, which means the beginning of the year. So this festival involved very minor stuff like a feast of some sort, um, new clothes. But the one thing that my mother insisted on was this small ritual, which was that she'd make a paste of neem leaves, neem leaf buds, and neem leaves and buds are horribly, hideously bitter. That ground up with jaggery. It's a sort of um, unrefined sugar. It's some one stage in the sugar-making process, this brown thing, which is sweet and delicious. But that would be ground up into this paste with this bitter thing, the bitter leaves of the neem tree. And she'd make these little balls. And first thing in the morning, <laughs> each of us had to eat one of these balls because it was supposed to signify uh, the good and the bad in life. Okay. And you are supposed to begin your year by acknowledging that both exist and swallowing it. <laughs> so that you can deal with it all <laughs> as the year went on. It was a horrifying, I hated that. We'd all be, and she'd say, if you don't eat it, that means something bad will happen to me. And <laughs> Put it back on her. <laughs> you can do that to kids for a while. <laughs> yes, it lasted for a bit, and then we just refused. <laughs> There are often unfinished stories and subplots in your novel. And in The Hero's Walk, I'm thinking of poor Pooty, who at 44 <laughs> yes. finally defies her mother and marries the man next door. Yes. Um, and though it does seem a relationship based on love or at least attraction, uh, right. the family next door is kind of sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Uh, do you like to leave us hanging like this? Because that's a story in itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, I didn't want to get a hitch to this crook next door. <laughs> uh, but she'd had such a sad life. I thought, well, why not? Let's do a little romance at the end of it and, you know, give her a, a life of her own. And who knows where she's going to end up. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I felt happy for her until I yes. thought, yeah, but this could go wrong. Easy, I know. <laughs> I'm not sure of the year exactly, but around 2002, you moved from out west to Quebec. Was that kind of like moving from India to Canada? Yes. <laughs> I was so in love with Vancouver. 
I loved it because I love gardening. And ah. I mean, we didn't have a big garden or anything, but I mean, there wasn't a winter. I mean, yeah, the winter, you can, you, yeah, yeah, it's very right. mild, or it used to be. Now it's got become completely crazy. But uh, there was always something growing. There's always greenery other than coniferous greenery. <laughs> so, and and it never seemed to last very long. I didn't mind the uh, damp days. And, and then we land up in Montreal. <laughs> and we have this thing called winter. <laughs> well, you've been in Calgary before. <laughs> I know, but there we used to get the Chinooks. Yeah. So every, so often everything, I mean, it would be minus 25 or something in the night and you get up in the morning, it's plus 10 or plus 12. Yeah. That was nice. So deep freeze. Yes. Yeah. Did you find a writing community when you came or did you, did you need a writing community? I, I don't, to be honest. I mean, I did enjoy having a writing community when I was in Calgary. I had a smallish community when I was in Vancouver because there were a whole lot of first-time novelists whose books were released at about the same time and we were doing all these festivals and a few of them lived in Vancouver. So we used to get together. It was nice. Mm -hmm. uh, but then after moving here, I think I was so busy dealing with a teenaged son. Uh, my new novel was in the works. I didn't really get involved. I, I did have, the first few years, I don't think there was any kind of community, but I didn't need it simply because I was so busy. Mm. I didn't want to be distracted. And then a few of my friends who lived in Vancouver, writer friends, happened to move to Montreal. No way. So suddenly I had a community. <laughs> I mean, Aren't you lucky? <laughs> I know. It was a community of like four people. Yeah, but, yeah if they're all right. That was enough. Pretty, yeah. I read where you said that you used to have people read your, your writing, but then you just got back all these other opinions and you decided that your own instincts yeah. were better. But, <laughs> yes. So I, you're not a fan of the workshop then? I did need it when I started, uh, but my stories, I've... After the first few stories, my instincts also kicked in. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that, I mean, every one of the short stories I wrote for those uh, workshops, I mean, the creative writing courses that I took before the master's degree, mm -hmm. every one of them w was published uh, immediately as soon as I wrote it and with very little correction. So I, obviously I had some kind of instinctive awareness of what makes a good story. So now I just don't want to show anybody anything. You don't show anyone your work first? No. Nobody? No. Really? <laughs> Until it's done so it's and I'm ready. Again. <laughs> it's not, it's not <laughs> confidence. It's just, I just know it's not good enough. Yeah. And until I feel that it is fairly okay, I, I don't send it out to anyone. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, perf I'm very happy to get any kind of feedback from my editor. You know, I'm I'm happy if the editor just tears the book up. I'm I'm very thick-skinned. I prefer that to somebody just saying, "Oh, this is absolutely wonderful." Yeah, sure. We are going to publish it tomorrow. You, you need know. some honest feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the novel that you were busy with in Montreal when you first got here was "Can You Hear the Nightbird Sing?" Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That title, once you know what it refers to, and this is superstition about a night bird that only the doomed can hear, it kind of makes the skin tingle. <laughs> is that a real superstition? No, I made it up. <laughs> I made it up. I thought I'd made up the night bird, but then at a reading, somebody in the audience told me that uh, the night bird does exist in their culture. Um, and so, oh, okay. <laughs> like it suggests that what happens in the novel is something known by the doomed. And I think we'll get to this soon. But just briefly, did you have the sense that uh, the Sikh community knew that tragedy was coming? I am not going to explain that title. I never do. Okay. I think that's one okay. of the mysteries I like to leave <laughs> unsorted, unsolved. Fair enough. <laughs> for the reader to interpret as they please. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. More than in previous novels, uh, the context in Can You Hear the Nightbird Call is fairly relevant to the story. And some yeah. readers may not be all that knowledgeable, especially in Canada, about the history of India. Was it challenging to have to provide background without flattening the story? Yes, it was. Actually, this was a really difficult book for me because, one, I had to find the historical context for a lot of details about the Canadian half of the story. I didn't know. I wasn't here. I was in India when the first half of the story occurred. That because is, it took place in the early 80s, correct? Yes, yeah. that's right. That is when Indra Gandhi was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards. And then there was this retaliatory action against the Sikhs. I mean, people went completely berserk. So it was it was so crazy. First, there was the shock of having your prime minister assassinated Mm -hmm. by your by her own bodyguards. And then all this mayhem, you know, and we happened to be on our honeymoon. <laughs> we were we had gone to Delhi and from Delhi we had gone to a little hill town called Dehradun. And the day after Indira Gandhi's assassination, we were headed back from Dehradun to Delhi by bus. And we we hadn't heard about this assassination because I think there was some kind of news blank. I mean, they had just kept it quiet for kept a bit. it quiet yeah. for the uh, and I think it was the news was released the morning we were leaving, and we were going to be leaving quite early in the morning. So just before we left, this was all in the news, and I remember we wondered whether it was wise to get going. Mm. But then somebody said, oh, nothing's going to happen. I mean, what's going to happen? It's just a, you know, it wasn't a very long journey anyways. But it was awful. I mean, nothing was going to happen to us. But we saw, we were witness to the most horrifying things outside of these bus windows in all these little towns. And and Delhi was like a war zone. The taxi ranks were completely on fire because most of the taxis were owned by Sikhs. And um, it was it so was the horrifying. violence was yeah, against the, the Sikh yes, minority. Yes, um, uh, yes, because uh, of Indira Gandhi's assassination. Right. So that was that half of the story, and then we fl- we were stuck in Delhi because all flights were cancelled. All kinds of things were going on. So we got back to Chennai, which is where we lived at that point, southern India, about ten days late uh, later. And the, the, we discovered that our neighbors right in the house right behind ours um, 
the man uh, was in Canada on that Air India flight and had obviously died. And his wife committed suicide in India, the widow who was left behind, which was, I mean, so this was all sort of there in my head, all this, this collection of events and stories and tragedies. And the link was there, but I didn't do anything about it for nearly 20 years mm-hmm. because I didn't know how to uh, connect it. I mean, it was a sort of um, subliminal thing going on in my mind, but it hadn't worked its way up to the surface and hadn't turned into a full book until we landed up in Vancouver. And there's a large Sikh population there. And I happened to be speaking to this woman who ran a local radio station. Now, she's, she wasn't a Sikh woman, but she, everybody knew this woman. And so I was talking to her about something else entirely. I think I was writing an article about her, uh, something. I, I can't even remember now why I went to meet her. And she started tell, talking to me about the the tensions within the Indian diasporic community, the Sikhs and the Hindus and, you know, all, all these people who had brought their baggage with them, right. emotional and other kinds of baggage from India, historical enmities, anger, etc. And you started to wonder about that. Yes, and yeah. I had, until then, I was living in this student community, student housing, in a very posh part of Vancouver. <laughs> UBC is like, I mean, the student, poor students are all on this side of this uh, road, and the other side is this place called Acadia Road, full of mansions. And this was, this really sort of, opened my eyes, you know. I was living in a state of innocence in a funny kind of way. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about these two different perspectives, two different stories, one of these people who were all, you know, killed because of a terrorist attack on an Air India flight. And as if that wasn't bad enough, our Prime Minister at that time went and uh, offered his condolences to India, the Indian government, <laughs> for the death of Canadian citizens. Yeah. So a lot of <laughs> Brian Mulroney was yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> so a lot of Indians were really hurt. I mean, it was a double blow. First As of if all, he wasn't acknowledging yes, their Canadian citizenship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the book, there are two families. One is Hindu, one is Sikh, and they settle in Vancouver, start their new lives. And they're part of this close-knit community of expats. Um, mm-hmm. But then this, they start to hear this news and the community begins to divide. Mm-hmm. After immersing yourself in the book, what do you come out of it thinking why that happens? Why they bring this baggage and carry it well, on? I think it's fairly typical of um, first-generation uh, immigrants. You know, It's a whole past that you're leaving. It's your history, it's your childhood, it's your ancestry. It's a land where your uh, name is part of that land's history. And suddenly you decide to go to another country where nobody knows you. Your name means nothing. Your history means nothing. You are almost, it's almost like you're being born again, Mm -hmm. you know. So the, for some people, it's fine. They don't mind discarding that past and just starting anew. 
no problem, you know, for whatever reason. There are people who have come as maybe the the country of their birth didn't offer them the kind of hope and comfort that their new country offers them. Maybe it didn't allow them to develop their full to their full potential. Mm-hmm. And maybe they feel that the new country. So those people are they people, can let go. Yeah, they can let go with no problems. Mm-hmm. But there are other people who simply cannot let go. They simply cannot let go of the anger. They go of the sorrow. They're always sort of divided, tugged in two directions. And it's not unique to it's the not. Indian no, expat no, community. No, it's, it's everybody. It's I mean, really everybody, yeah, yeah, it is. And I, maybe it disappears after one generation or two generations, three, if the parents don't sort of keep the history alive in the child's mind. I found it interesting that the motivation for avenging justice was seen through the eyes of an adolescent, the nephew, Jaspir, and a fundamentalist, Dr. Majumda. Mm-hmm. Is this a comment on who might subscribe to that view? Well, not really. I decided to pick on this boy because adolescence is such an unstable age. Yeah. kind. I mean, and it's such an, it's a time when um there are so many strong emotions coursing through uh, a person's uh, mind and life and body. And so this boy seemed the perfect repository for, I mean, all, and also an in, uh, someone who can be e- easily influenced and somebody who's already feeling abandoned by his own parents, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so there's already that anger which can be built on. And no other avenue. This boy is susceptible. So I thought that would be an interesting person to use. And it's it was also based, this character, was the boy, was partly based on this young man. I haven't met the young man, but I met this uh, Sikh gentleman who arrived in Canada, I think, in the 70s ended up uh, finding a job in a remote little community in northern Quebec. And he had three daughters, and his wife, who always wanted a son, decided to adopt uh, one of her nephews, or, or, or I, I don't know, some uh, the son of a relative, brought him over from India when he was 13. Mm-hmm. And that boy was always angry and very difficult to manage. And apparently he got seduced by this whole, you know, Khalistani movement. And one of these family members who I spoke to felt that he was aware of what was going down, Mm -hmm. but he didn't realize that this woman who was fostering him, who had adopted him, and her two daughters would, or one daughter, sorry, the woman and one of her daughters uh, w- both of them were on that flight. Mm. So they died. And this child didn't wasn't aware of that, but he was he knew that this thing was going to be happening. You know well, that will live with him for a long time. I'm sure. Yeah. So that little bit of information became this character. Mm. I started thinking, what a horrifying thing for a child. And how many people knew about it? 
I mean, I'm I'm sure there are. There, you start hearing rumors. I mean, yeah. Everything in this book is based on rumors, because I'd speak to people and hear and hear about all this stuff. I don't know how much of it is true, yeah. but that's where fiction comes from, I suppose. Yeah. You know, it may be that a lot of Canadians first started understanding a bit more about the Sikh minority in India and the separatist uh, w- with the flight, mm-hmm. with the bombing yes. of that flight. Yes. So back to that question about how you make sure they have the context for the story. You use letters as one device. Are there other devices you can use to to bring in the context without killing the story? Well, unfortunately for this, I did have to uh, ha- write a little essay at the end of the book, yes. which I didn't want to do. Uh, uh, but the ways in which you can provide context, for instance, I had the third character, the woman who's stuck in Delhi. Uh, she was also her story, the fact that... The niece? Uh, no, the... Yeah, the niece, okay. sorry, mm-hmm. the mother of the boy. Right. Uh, yes. yes. So she was one way of providing context how all this is linked, you know, the partition of India, the Khalistani movement, uh, how two different women in two different countries feel about the same thing, how this Hindu woman is stuck in the middle of the story about these two Sikh women um, and becomes a victim because she was also on that flight. These are the characters who provide the context, who provide the historical context and that's basically how I did it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it worked. I didn't know a lot about it before. Mm-hmm. I knew about Air India, of course, but mm-hmm. I found with the letters and with the perspective from somebody who is still there, mm-hmm. it, it, it really flowed quite mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about the Vancouver side of the story at all. Like I yeah. said, I had to do a lot of research for that, talk to a lot of people. Um, go and dig around in, and there was very little information mm. about the community. And it's come back. Yes. Um, okay. So we're we're hearing all this information that Trudeau is talking about and sponsored killings by the Indian government. Uh, does it worry you that this is going to have ripples well, again? I don't know where this is going and how much of it. Uh, I mean, I think uh, we need solid proof yeah. as citizens of the country too. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of reluctant to comment on anything yeah, sure. because I really have no idea. It's unfolding. Yes, as, as it's we unfolding talk, as we speak. Yeah. I'm your fourth novel. <laughs> Moving on. Your fourth novel was Tell It to the Trees. It's written in the third person. Yeah. And I wondered what you like about that point of view. Um, it gives me a kind of overarching power to see everything uh, that's going on. And because if it's in the first person, then there's a limited perspective, point of view. This way, I could see what all the people in the book are doing and sort of move them around the (laughs) story and give them uh, things to do and uh, fiddle with the plot and uh, hold back information as I pleased and so on and so forth. So for this book, that seemed the best way to do it. I did try writing it in the first person at one point, mm-hmm. and it didn't work. Too entirely. limited. Yes. Yeah. Well, in the other books, you do it as well, mm-hmm. and 
like you were saying before, it gives you a different version of mm-hmm. the same history. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's quite, mm-hmm. it offers those layers. Yes. And yeah, and uh, it worked. The first person narrative voice worked perfectly for the mother-daughter story because, you know, that was about memories and how uh, one person's recollection of something does not necessarily coincide with the other. Right. And so it was perfect. We had two sets of stories which sometimes agreed and sometimes didn't. But when it was, for all the other books, given the size of the canvas and the complexity of everything that was going on in there, in that that particular book, the first person voice was way, way too limited, even if I had many, many different first person voices. I tried. I always, somehow I always start a book with uh, one of the characters, in the first person. Do you? Absolutely. <laughs> so you can get into the voice? or I think so. I don't know what it is. I, I get in there and then it just doesn't work. <laughs> so you start over. Yes. <laughs> but you've got to know the character better, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, tell it to the trees. Uh, it's a story that deals with domestic violence in a small and isolated town. And while the characters are Indian or of Indian origin, it takes place entirely in Canada. Did you feel you'd written enough about India at that point? Um, Yes, I think so. Because what was happening, I I was in India till 1990, 1991. And although fiction writer really doesn't have any limits to where he or she can travel uh, on the wings of imagination. I just, I just wanted to see if I could set a book in this country, which I had occupied for at least uh, two decades, and I didn't feel like setting another book in India. It just seemed very far away. Mm-hmm. Now that might change with, you know, yet another book. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, in 2017, you chaired the Scotiabank Giller jury. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like, besides having to read so many books? I really enjoyed it. I don't normally... How many books uh, did you have to read? I think it was 126. Oh, my gosh. Something. That's a lot Maybe books. more. I know. <laughs> I don't, I don't if, I been, if I had been a fly on the wall, <laughs> what kind of discussions would I have heard? <laughs> Actually, it's fairly easy to spot. I mean, there's kind of unanimity in um, when it's a really good book. It everybody loves it. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no uh, dissenting voice until the final stages when we're right. trying to figure out which one when is going to go good. to the yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the difficult thing, and uh, also the ones that are really difficult are the ones that are technically excellent. There's nothing wrong with them, but there's nothing outstanding about them or different or something, I think. Mm-hmm. So those are the really difficult books. How do, you, how do you decide? And since everybody on these juries, all of us are writers, that makes it all the more difficult. Because, because you understand. Yeah, yeah, understand entirely how much has gone into the writing of a book. And how uh, disappointing it would be if, I mean, the writer would, how disappointed a writer must feel uh, when his or her book isn't on a long list or a short list. Because 
unfortunately in this crowded world of uh, novels and writing prizes do make a difference mm-hmm. even if it's a kind of small blip even if it's just for the space of one year you know yeah so the other thing is that everybody's got a different different taste and if they're all good books how do you persuade do you does it come down to who can persuade better than the other person well it's just we start discussing books like we are students of literature uh-huh. you know literally talk about the characters talk about the plot talk about the structure um, talk about the voice and whether this is really different and interesting so the, these are all the things you start you literally start taking apart the book as a, i mean we all become literary critics really? in that moment you know and then there's a kind of for the most part um it's a little bit of give and take and yeah <laughs> what way of doing i it. always feel sorry for the runners up <laughs> i feel, i know i i feel terrible for everybody who isn't on that yeah. uh, long list at least you returned to university at uh, about the age of 50 to study drawing and painting is that a period when you stopped writing altogether no Uh, drawing and painting a draw art fine art was my road not taken i it was either you know it was either become a writer or become an artist and i decided to become a writer so it's not that it was your true no it, i could have I, i sometimes i tell my uh, husband that i wish i had two lives yeah. running parallel <laughs> like One. the train tracks yes <laughs> <laughs> i had or there was more than 24 hours in a day yeah Is there an uh, intersection between the the two arts? Oh, so much for really? me. Yeah, oh, definitely. Like, how so? I um I think visually and when I draw and paint, I ha- I like having a narrative element mm. in my paintings or drawings. I love figurative work. I love drawing faces. I love painting faces. I always have these little scribbles along the margins of whatever paper is next to me when i'm writing a book sort of imagining this characters yeah, yeah characters face and features and bringing the person alive uh with a drawing so there's always been this intersection um of these two parts of my life and at 50 i think uh was it was i 50 or yeah i think i was 50 or maybe i was younger I was a bit younger I think but uh, our son was done with school and university I think so I had all this time we've <laughs> got one more class you said to finish <laughs> and then you're going to be complete are you going to exhibit uh, no oh why not no because I don't want the I don't want Where's that, that confidence <laughs> well I don't want the pressure mm. I just that's that's something I do for the love of it it's not a profession there's no competitive like element gardening. nothing yeah okay. yeah gardening is hard this is pure pleasure Oh, and no. I can do it year round. There's no winter yeah. for an artist. <laughs> you need a greenhouse. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I understand we can expect the fifth novel. Yes. Can you tell me anything about it? No. Oh, oh, oh. What about when it's coming out? I have no idea. Okay. I delayed it. I I don't know. I've delayed it a lot. I've never taken this long over a book. I'm not sure why. I was because you're busy painting. Yeah, I was busy painting, <laughs> but also I was trying to figure out exactly 
what I wanted to write about next, how to set a book in Montreal, for instance. I mean, the book is set in Montreal, sort of. Okay, you gave us one little thing. There. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of rich material in this city. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but I think when I started writing that book, I was in a state where I felt that I'd lost my landscape, mm. my internal landscape. I didn't feel like I wanted, I could write about India for some reason, and perhaps because I haven't picked up French as much, I feel that half of the city is behind a wall for me. And so I, I, I was getting this feeling, the same kind of feeling I had when I first moved from India to Canada and decided I wouldn't be able to write as a journalist because I knew nothing about this country. I wasn't involved in the social, the political, the economic life in a way that would allow me to write meaningful journalistic content. This, I, I started feeling the same way about Montreal and me. Mm -hmm. And so I came to this place. So, so there was that battle going on about where to set this book. And then I decided, well, her landscape is going to be her own self. This this main character's landscape is not going to be any country, any place. It'll be inside her head. An internal landscape. An internal landscape yeah. on a hospital bed. Oh boy. So, <laughs> <laughs> so then I started writing that book and I found the hospital bed far too limiting. <laughs> And if I wanted an internal landscape, it would have to be in the first person. And that, I found it even more limiting because then what about all these other characters who were coming around to the hospital bed? I needed their life, their stories too. Well, this so, is why it's taken yeah, you a while. Yeah, it yeah. took me a lot of rewriting and reworking and throwing away. And But it's flowing. It is now. Okay. Uh, well, it's sitting with my editor now. So, okay. Well, that's... <laughs> For the nth time. Close. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you one last question, Anita? Yes. Do you still travel by train? When I go to India, sometimes, yes, I do travel by train. Uh, I was in Europe and we decided to take, take the train from one city to another in Spain. Mm -hmm. So that was nice. I mean, even though they were really fast trains and definitely nothing as entertaining as an Indian train. <laughs> The thing about Indian train journeys is that there's this constant interaction with people. On board the train, people chat with you and offer you food. It's very and crowded, you have, isn't yeah, it? No, well, it depends on which, what kind of compartment or yeah. whatever you're in. Right. And it stops at stations and you can get out and get yourself something to eat or a cup of tea and then make sure you're back on before <laughs> that. But, you know, these fast speed, the, these really fast trains in Europe, there's no room for all that. No, that's true. Well, Anita, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. That was Anita Rao Badami, the best-selling, multi-award-winning novelist. Find her books at Distilled Booksellers and find bookstores everywhere. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to follow us on your podcast app and to sign up for our newsletter at the website howiwrotethisthepodcast.com. Next week, join me as I talk to Michael Yossel, the author from Leningrad, whose fiery Facebook posts became his latest book. <laughs>